Welcome to Northern Overexposure Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about the 1990s CBS series, Northern Exposure. Today's episode is about episode two, season two, take two. This is our second time <laughs> recording. We lost our first take of this episode. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, my USB port failed and we were just recording straight from my laptop instead of these microphones. It's the lost We got tape. about an hour in and we had to start over. We're, we're just brewed a pot of coffee. Um, we were, <laughs> oh my God. I'm trying to remember how we started the first take of this. I was like, you know, I like, um, I like when we record it at night because it's like post-dinner we're having, you said, like, we're having this post-dinner conversation. It feels right. Yeah, well, now we're in post-post-dinner. <laughs> yeah. Now we're almost this at is bedtime. This nightcap. This is like, <laughs> your, friend won't, your friend is, like, too drunk and won't go home. He's still, like, <laughs> talking about his favorite Tarantino movie or something. Yeah, he starts badgering you either about Tarantino movies or way too deep political discussions that neither one of you are equipped for. <laughs> Thankfully, this is not a political podcast, so we try to st- steer away from that. Not yet. Um, really quickly, my name is Lee. Uh, and I co-host the show with my friend Charles here. Yeah, hi, I'm Charles, and I have never seen the show. I've never seen Northern Exposure. Lee has seen it plenty of times. Yeah. I'm seeing it with fresh eyes, and together we overanalyze this television show. Yeah, this is your first uh, time watching this episode, and yeah, you're right. We, you know, we, we overanalyze the show. It's also our mission statement to expand the reach of the show. We like to bring on... Uh, at the end of each episode, someone who has never seen the show before, um, sort of like Charles, but this person has only watched one episode, and it will be this episode, which is titled The Big Kiss. So stick around for the end of the episode. There's uh, We always have a guest, someone special to come by, uh, watch the episode out of context, and give their opinion. Yeah, that poor sap. We just drop him in the middle of a jungle. You say, like, find your way out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so on this episode, I got to say that I... I can see where the writers are coming at with this show. Okay. It's starting to come into its own flavor, its own signature. Gotcha. But I don't know if I like this flavor. Okay, so you can feel that you can feel that it's forming Northern Exposure proper. Like this is the show that we're going to start watching. So we talked about that like in the first season. You know, every show slowly finds its footing. You know, we're in season two now. But you're not you're not sure you're a fan yet. Yeah, well, it might be possible because I just don't like how this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, devolved into well mm-hmm. this particular episode because I thought it was going to be an episode about Chris trying to find that woman that came into his studio. I oh. thought it was going to be a whole search for her. Yeah, so Chris loses his voice when a beautiful woman comes into the K-Bear radio station. Uh, she asks him for directions and he can't respond because he's smitten and he physically can't respond. She like somehow magically steals his voice with her beauty. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of the only time we see her in this episode. We like, as you said, maybe you expected to a return of her character, but she yeah. doesn't really. I was hoping that Chris would start into like this adventure, this quest to find her and it would take like the whole townsfolk mm. uniting. Cause uh, later on in the episode, Holling reads for Chris and says, well, the beautiful woman that came right. into my studio yesterday, please come forward. Yes. And yeah, because like Chris can't speak, so he gets hauling to read this letter. Yeah, and yeah, it is basically a call to action, and we, it almost feels like they're they're teasing that um, that that is sort of 
the goal in sight, the end goal to mm-hmm. find her. But no. oh, right before that happens, mm-hmm. uh, Chris is playing. Well, no, he's not playing. He's talking about his dream last night, and in that dream, he was with his first love. This is in uh, right before the the beautiful lady enters the station. Yeah, right before yeah, she. He's enters. got his little monologue, his Chris in the morning talks. Mm-hmm. What tell us about the dream? What is what happens in this? This dream. So he's in the factory with his first love, and they're on an assembly line, and they're trying to put together these frogs that would go sing and dance. Yeah, mechanical frogs. And I don't think the mechanical frogs are super important. It's more to the fact that he's with his first love. Yeah. But I thought it was a really tongue-in-cheek reference to Chris losing his voice because it's like he's got a frog in his mouth. Oh, yeah, like a like a uh, frog in your throat. Is that where the expression comes from? Yeah, though that expression is taken more at face value because uh, when it was popularized in the late 1800s, it was because you literally sounded like a frog. You were hoarse. Oh, like cro- croaky voice. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that's where they got the expression from. So I but, just thought it was really uh, fun for them to use that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like you said, it, it seems like the the point of the dream that Chris is honing in on is his first true love is what he describes it as. And there's a lot of that in this episode where uh, characters are remembering uh, past love. Uh, Maurice has a big sort of storyline, or not storyline, but, you know, his interactions in this episode. I like how he's characterized in this episode. Like he's, really? He's, well, I mean, like, I know I always say, I always tend to say, like, uh, now I want to preface this by saying that Maurice is not my favorite character, but I like it when, <laughs> but I, I, you know, like a parental to, advisory warning. Yeah. <laughs> and I seem to do that every time. And I always seem to have something good to say about Maurice, uh, of late at least. And I really like it in this episode. He's not sort of this, uh, this lost fool, idiot, sort of bigot, crass character. I mean, he is a little creepy. We can get to that, but, um, he is, for the most part, pretty introspective, pretty thoughtful, which I like. He has some pretty cool um, stuff to do in this episode. Oh, I see what you mean. And and, I, I agree with you there, but I will say that the, the content of what he's doing, uh, how it came about, in my opinion, I think He's still fawning for, for Shelly, and, yeah. and we'll get there. I was going to also say um, there is a brief uh, segment in the Ed storyline in which this first love idea comes up again. Um, should we jump into the Ed storyline? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I thought it was going to be an Ed-centric episode because of the opening. It starts of with the episode. Ed. Yeah. Before the, it's like the opening gambit before the credit music and the the credits. Uh, Ed is like walking down a road at night. He's walking back home to his apartment, and I really think I guess this scene is is there. Uh, it serves the purpose of showing that Ed doesn't really have like a proper family. Every night he goes home alone. Tonight, he's going home with uh, some tapes he rented from Ruthann's store. It's some Spencer Tracy tapes. And he's just sitting at home in his bed at night eating carrots and like peanut butter, you know, <laughs> scooping peanut butter out of the jar. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, juxtaposed with uh, as he's walking into his apartment, there's, his neighbors seem to be a, a, a very kind family. They invite him in for dinner, but he turns them down. And really, yeah, he just has to go go home alone each night, you know, the Spencer Tracy show too. Like there's some monologue in, in the show that he's watching about lonely boys, like orphans essentially probably. Yeah. And it really drives in that point that, <laughs> that Ed is an orphan, you know, for lack of a better descriptor, you know, he, he doesn't really, we never really 
get to see this side of him much in, in the first season. Like we don't really get to see like, what does Ed do? Cause yeah. he's not in school. We, you know, we, we talked about that. It's like, does Ed go to school? He's like, no, he's just like a drifter. Age, he's just really aloof. And I, you know, I will admit, I never really thought about that either about his lineage because he's a great character and all, but I just didn't think about his backstory and especially about his mother and father and who they possibly could be. Which is what, you know, what his sort of storyline's about. He, pretty shortly after this, he goes to, I guess, the tribal hall. They're playing bingo. And uh, I like that we get to see a lot of the Native American cast of the show. We get to see that sort of culture of Sicily in this scene. Um, he finds, I, I think it's his great aunt. And he's basically asking, he wants to know who his parents are. And there's all these different competing stories between all the different tribes members. Like, they have different... <laughs> answers for him that don't necessarily sync up. Yeah, you think they would have got their story straight whenever this moment came. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it's all, they're all, like, yeah, one person says um, he was found wrapped in a blanket, and then another person corrects him, but it's almost as if, like, they don't really really put too much stock into it. Uh, what, what did she say? It's like, oh, blanket, uh, seal skin, seal skin coat, what does it matter? Like, Can you tell me who my parents were? And 37. We found you, you know that. Wrapped in a blanket? A coat. A seal skin coat. Cold blanket, so sumi. I 28. Like, they're not even trying that hard to. Yeah. <laughs> it's obviously a lie. And Ed is like, I just want to know who my parents were. <laughs> I like that whenever they do discuss a few details about his mother and father, they say that his mother was a white woman. And the way yeah. they say that line, and all of them are saying that. The mm -hmm. whole uh, community. The like, table there, yeah, everyone yeah. chimes in. They, they, they can agree to, on that point. They can agree, on that, and they don't say it in a really negative manner either. They don't try to keep it hush or like that's taboo that his father was oh, like a, a white woman. a mixed uh, race uh, yeah. couple. They, yeah. they seem fine with it, which I thought was like, oh, it's really neat. I think we talked about this, yeah. Like, I think Sicily, the people of Sicily are all super inviting. That's what's really cool is everyone kind of cares about each other and looks out for each other, which is um, obviously... That's how Ed was raised. You know, he didn't have a mother or father, and he was raised by the tribe. And also lots and lots of movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's his, uh, that's his education, I guess. And the tribe is his family. Uh, so, yeah, we learned a couple things, a couple hard facts uh, in quotations. Uh, like his, his mom was a white woman, perhaps a teacher or maybe a missionary. There's not a lot of uh, corroborating stories there. And everyone seems to, again, chime in that his father's name is Smith, which is just the most generic <laughs> place to start if you're trying to find your find out who your father is. Yeah, I can imagine him just going to like the uh, the phone old, book. Yeah, the old like phone books, and whenever you like dialed an operator and said like I would like to talk to this person, it's like I like to talk to Smith. It's like oh, you are so out of luck. <laughs> you're screwed, man. <laughs> How much time do you have? So. Yeah, but the you know he's wondering about who his father and mother is and someone comes to join him on this search. Yeah, he's, uh, he's like woken up in the middle of the night, right, uh, by a spirit guide, this character, One Who Waits, who um, is sort of this ancient, old, wise uh, Native American. Uh, I think that he's actually ref referred to at one point as a chief. I don't know exactly what his standing was in the tribe, but, um, you know, he's, he's, he has a task now, which is to help Ed find his find out who his father is. Yeah. What's great about this is that I typed in his name, one <laughs> who waits into Google, and the only things that I had popping up were Northern Exposure. Really? Yeah. So it's like so it's like the show invented 
that's kind of like hard to believe because you know one who waits seems like a common or it seems like sort of I don't want to say generic but it's pretty cool that they were the first or at least the most popular yeah. writers to like our show to come up with this title. It's I, a great title. It is. It really is. I for sure thought I was going to bring up some sort of, uh, I don't know, like makeshift D and D campaign or something like that. If I just have one who waits, cause that seems like a title that you it's would It's a have. great title. It's I such think. a great title. Um, but I'm so surprised that for the first couple of pages that I could see on Google, it was, um, Northern exposure all the way, mm-hmm. but I really like this character. Yeah, what would you describe him like? Uh, his interactions with Ed and with this journey. Well, he is obviously wise, but at times it's kind of senile. Yeah, he's very old. Like we said, did we say two hundred and fifty-six years or something? And he's a little, he's a little aloof and and not always effective. In fact, he, like he, his his game plan, his like strategy to try to figure out who his father, uh, who Ed's father is, is not through like magic or sorcery or mystical powers. He's simply just uh, yelling at the wind or <laughs> asking the, the water. Like I, at one point he goes to a stream and he calls out uh, spirit of the water, who are Ed's parents? And then he like sticks his ear down to the water uh, waiting for a response. And of course the, the water doesn't speak English, but he, I don't know. He just says, uh, that the spirit of the water is uh, doesn't want to talk right now, or you know, doesn't have an answer, doesn't know. Yeah, but yeah, he's very ineffective, kind of slow paced, which which I dig. You know, mm-hmm. what do you make of the name One Who Waits? We were just talking about that. Like, we like that name. What what could it mean in the context here? Well, I thought it was really interesting because a lot of the times you in works of literature you don't want to wait. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's the people that action or something. Yeah, they do action. It's uh fortune favors the bold. People that are willing to go and actually go forth, that is who the story usually rewards and that's usually the cause of uh, the, the protagonist or the character being able to find whatever he is searching for. It's not waiting and we can see that the first thing that comes to mind is uh waiting for Godot, that play by Samuel Beckett where mm-hmm. the two characters wait for a third party to come meet them. Mm-hmm. And they just constantly wait, pontificate a lot about life, but ultimately nothing happens to them because they're just constantly waiting. Like in this episode, it's true. Yeah, his, his name is super fitting, One Who Waits, because even before they start their, uh, their, their journey to find Ed's father, One Who Waits, uh, what is he like? He stands around to like sort of the center of Sicily and, has to kind of like get his bearings straight and try to figure out because he's remembering that there used to be maybe like a tribal meeting uh, where the hunters used to gather before going on a hunt. Uh, they would be in where the wash and dry is now. You mm-hmm. know, he's like, oh, there used to be a big tree here. Um, I think Ed is interested. He's like, oh, is it, was it a special tree? And he's like, no, it was just a tree. There just used to be a big tree right mm-hmm. here. <laughs> um, and even before they go on their journey, uh, one who waits, insists that they stop and get some food. He's like, you're probably going to want to get some food. So he's like, definitely not (laughs) propelling forward very fast. Um, Maybe that has to do with his age. Maybe it has to do a lot with his name and his whole doctrine, his philosophy is, you know, maybe uh, the straight path is not always the one that is successful. Maybe his, his whole ideology is, is if you, if you wait long enough, you take it slow um, things will come to light. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if if it actually works out for them. Yes or no? Uh, we'll get to the conclusion. They're they're you know you can you could rate their success with different um, metrics, I guess. Yeah, different perspective on that. And 
uh, just as a whole, I, I just think it's really interesting that they uh, desi- decided to use that philosophy of waiting because uh, just like I said previously, so many times you just want to actually do action. And I, I, I desperately want this to be something in which he gets rewarded for. But yeah. ultimately, as we can see in the resolution, it's not necessarily true. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think, yeah, I think it's uh, very indicative of this show. You said maybe you started seeing, uh, tasting the flavor of this show, as it were. Yeah, it's very common for the show to take like the slow route, you know? Mm-hmm. We've talked about this and guests have brought it up before too. It's a little slower paced, but I think you're right. Yeah, and, and let's just hop to the end of this sort of conclusion here with One Who Waits. In the end, you could say uh, he failed. He actually tells Ed, and he's like, I'm sorry I failed you. But Ed is like, no, 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 don't, don't be sorry. I feel better. I'm glad you came. Um, and ultimately before One Who Waits leaves, he just, he has uh, like a parting remark so like, think about it, Ed. You got friends. That's a lot. That's that's one who waits. Sort of like his parting wisdom is um, sort of essentially like you know what we've what we've known all along is that uh, his real family is the people who raised him, the tribe, um, and his friends. You know, he's got yeah. He has people that care about him, and it's shown um, with Joel at least because Joel is really concerned because yeah, Joel one like, who waits isn't is just a figment of Ed's imagination. Right. No one can see. Uh, I guess, well, aside from apparently Marilyn can see yes. one who waits, but every other person in every other scene, there's no one who waits. He's just like an invisible friend. In fact, I think one who waits has a line, uh, something like the white man is blind or something. Like they can't see <laughs> like only, and it, it's funny because Marilyn does like say, like she sees one who waits whenever uh, Ed is leaving Joel's office. She's like, Bye, Chief, or something. She's the one who says. Oh yeah, she's like she's bye, the one who calls Ed, Chief. Bye, Chief. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Joel's really concerned about him, and you know he's just taken into his office. See if right. he's suffering from schizophrenia or anything like that. I like what he says. He he. Uh, one of the diagnoses uh, he gives is repressed needs. Ed, can I be honest with you? Sure. Have you ever heard of delusional behavior, wish fulfillment, repressed needs? Oh, you mean where you want something you don't want to admit to? Exactly. I mean, you really want to know who your parents were, right? I mean, you need to know. And yeah, like, you know, it's possible, at least from Joel's perspective, uh, it could be possible that Ed has invented this character to help him find, to help Ed find his parents, which is what he's really longing for. We see from the very first scene in this episode. Oh, I just thought of something that uh, I'm going to overanalyze, actually. So... Toward the end, uh, toward the resolution of Ed and the great, uh, the, the, the great one who waits. waits. <laughs> yeah, the great one who yeah, waits. He is great. <laughs> That's just the engine I'm using. It's great. Uh, <laughs> for the one who waits, they're in his bed and it looks like they're next to a fire, mm. uh, like a crackling fire. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out at the end of the scene, it was just uh, well, it's a, a fire TV. On, it's, it's a, a TV. fire on. It's a fire uh, recorded fire that they're on TV. And one yeah. who waits, <laughs> one who waits. Uh, he says something like, oh, it's good. It, it's almost warm. It almost mm-hmm. feels warm. Yeah. And almost like the real thing. Yeah, it's like a placebo effect for yeah. him to have that. But maybe that's kind of what uh, Ed's hoping for with this, where you were saying like, oh, the one who waits doesn't necessarily give him the answers straightforward about who his mother and father is, but mm-hmm. gives him another alternative to help him cope with peace of mind. It's yeah. kind of like that fire on the TV. Kind of helps him. It's yeah. not real, but kind of helps him get through the day. That's the device or that's the mechanism that helps him get through. Yeah, I think, uh, and <laughs> once again, this is our second time talking about this. 
You know, audience, if you've uh, if you're listening to this now, go ahead and stop, rewatch the episode for a second time, and then come back and listen. Uh, it'll be a similar effect of what what Charles and I are going through right now. Um, but no, we did mention something about um, you know why is it that the the tribes folk uh, the members of of the tribe in the bingo hall why are they keeping this secret from Ed like is it you know, it's to protect Ed, perhaps. Um, there, I don't. It's, there's no like necessarily sinister reason that they're trying to cover up. You know, maybe Ed's father was a drunk, or maybe he committed a crime or something, and they didn't know how to tell Ed, but they knew that, you know, the happiest answer would not to ha- not to have Ed search out his father. Hmm. But I feel like the way that Native Americans are represented in this show is they all have this some sort of like innate undescribed wisdom and uh, they just all s- seem to know what is right, like the right thing to do. So even though there's no sort of like clear answer uh, as to why they can't just come out and tell Ed, maybe they actually just don't know who his parents are, but maybe they know in the end that um, Ed doesn't necessarily need to, because this is kind of our conclusion, Ed yeah. doesn't need to find his actual mom and dad because his family is around him and they've been with him his whole life. It's his tribe in Sicily really is Ed's family. Yeah. I I think that you're raising a reasonable point right there. And I do think it's really interesting that we don't know why the community or the tribal community as a whole is just keeping that away from Ed. And we said, it's like clear that they're, they're lying or they're not. They're all in on it. It's very clear on that. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> I like that the whole town is in on it too. Like, well, not the whole town, but like the whole uh, yeah, like the tribe. The whole tribe. Every single one of them. Do you think that uh, Ed went to like a different home uh, when he was a child? Just like bouncing the, around homes? Yeah, just bouncing around different members of the tribe. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Cause, so, or that's what I was kind of thinking about. Um, so in episode two, Brains Know How, Native Intelligence, we learned that Anku is his uncle. I don't know if it's that, you know, it's like tribal uncle. And we get to see his aunt. I don't know if it's the same great aunt as it is in the, uh, in the bingo hall here. Hmm. Hi, just a quick punch and edit here. The actress who plays Ed's great aunt here in the bingo hall is Geraldine Keems. And the actress who is credited as playing Mrs. Anku is Armenia Miles. She's also, I'm assuming, the mother of Elaine Miles, who plays Marilyn Whirlwind. And in fact, on her IMDb credits, Armenia Miles is also credited as playing Mrs. Whirlwind, which would be Marilyn's mother, on other episodes of Northern Exposure. Yeah, I think it's definitely plausible that um, he would have jumped around to different families, especially if that actress in the bingo hall is not the same as the actress in episode two. Because, you know, maybe it, it could be true that maybe Ed grew up his whole life with uh, Uncle Anku, sort of as a father figure. But I think he's, I think there's a, scene in a, there's a scene in this episode that kind of suggests that Ed is sort of handed down to different families. I believe um, One Who Waits tells Ed um, whenever they're standing sort of in this open landscape area, he says, do you remember this spot? This is the spot where you became a man. And he tells Ed something like, it's like, you were just a boy or something. You were just a baby at the time. I think maybe he was three years old. But each man told you a story of the tribe, a history. Each man told you a story of the tribe, a history. They didn't expect you to remember everything. They just wanted you to hear the words. 
And when they finished, they picked you up and handed you man to man so that you would know each one of them was your father. And of course, that doesn't really seem like they're getting close to any answer. Like Ed doesn't really feel like they're, that's covering a lot of ground. But in the end, that's kind of the resolution mm-hmm. and kind of what, sorry, what we're just getting into, the idea that maybe Ed has been handed down or handed, you know, has been yeah. living with different families in the tribe. And mm-hmm. that's his sort of his web of family. Yeah, his community right there. I overall really like that plot line, even though I'm not the biggest fan of the resolution of it. I, yeah. I think it's a fine enough resolution as it is, and it's very Northern Exposure-esque. Yeah. But I think that's better than the plot A, the major plot line of Chris right. and Maggie, who gets what, twisted into there. Before we jump there, I guess I, sh- I should say that the resolution of the one who waits plot line is uh, actually pretty much similar, almost exactly the same to the resolution of... Uh, um, in the last episode, goodbye to all that. When Ed is trying to give Joel closure, he similarly fails, just the same way that one who waits fails to um, give Ed an answer who his father is. But in goodbye to all that, despite this closure um, sort of scenario that Ed has built, despite it not actually working, it ends up being such a happy conclusion. Like, you know, we see clearly that Joel has friends and they're everyone says, you know, he has these very strong friends that go out of their way and care about him. And that's uh, sort of, I guess the exact same resolution that Ed gets with one who waits. Hmm. Okay. I see what you mean. That's a good, uh, good connection between the two. I didn't catch that. Yeah. And well, and before let's jump to Chris right after this, but, um, this is actually one, a cooler, a really cool part of this episode. It's in the same scene when they're kind of sitting on the bed and they're, um, they're warming their hands to yeah, the yeah. fake fire on the TV. <laughs> this is where one who waits tells the story of his first love. Remember, we have that theme that we've been oh, talking about, right. first love. Um, and it's an interesting moment. Uh, so just want to throw a little quick little shout out to the director of this episode. we got a Sandy Smolin coming back. Sandy Smolin! <laughs> yes. <laughs> Returning. This is our... This is. Uh, he directed an episode in the first season, Sex, Lies, and Ed's Tape, which I think Charles and I agree is probably one of our least favorite episodes. But I, do, I, still, I still believe that it's one of the better directed episodes of the series so far. Yeah, um, it's also the only episode that was written by the showrunners. Or it was, uh, yeah, so it was Joshua Brand and John Falsey. They wrote Sex, Lies, and Ed's Tape. They also wrote the pilot. But it's funny that they chose to, to write the worst the, episode. At least in our one. opinion, one of our... Least favorite episodes. Um, what am I getting at? Yeah, I love San- Sandy Smolin's work in this episode. We're talking about the scene where One Who Waits um, describes the scene of his first love. Uh, I think it comes about because One Who Waits, they're sitting in Ed's room and he says, um, you know, this is where I first fell in love. I met the love of my life. Yeah. And he describes the scene. Essentially, the story goes, he's, One Who Waits is in the woods or something and he sees a woman, uh, a woman from his tribe uh, get off of her horse and wander around in a field. The story that he tells to Ed isn't particularly interesting or intriguing, but the music is so powerful. We got like the Uncle Anku theme, I believe. That's like yeah. returning, the pan flute, the camera movement, and also just a great acting by one who waits in this scene. It's not a very interesting story necessarily, but it's super cinematic. And it really, I don't know, it really felt powerful. And it made me sort of you know, it kind of elicits that feeling of um, first love, which is something that has been uh, 
pointed at throughout uh, this entire episode. I feel like, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to elicit our feelings of like, what did it feel like when you first fell in love? And I think by the end of the episode with this scene, um, it's proof that they, at least for me, they've succeeded. They, they made, they made it happen, you know, with, with very little text, just, just this, feeling of this uh, storytelling, fireside storytelling yeah. on the TV. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those uh, rare instances where it was definitely the director that brought about all that, and it was not the writing. It was just uh, what you can elevate out of it, the writing. Great job with the acting, too, but yeah, lots of, um, lots of you know, the components of cinema are at work in this scene. Oh, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Because yeah. there's not, not, not a lot of script there. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful story, but it's uh, pretty pretty plain. Yeah, Ed was like, uh, and then what happens? It's like, oh, then we, I married her. Like, we're in love. <laughs> it sounds so small, but it is, uh, it feels very universal and true. Just kind mm-hmm. of like the feeling of like a crush, falling in love with someone, I guess. Yeah, uh, man, okay, if I had to <laughs> think of something like, top three best feelings, but they don't happen a lot, is <laughs> definitely when your crush, uh, like returns back to love. What is that called? <laughs> that doesn't happen a lot. No, never. Reciprocate. <laughs> reciprocate. Yeah, it reciprocates yeah. <laughs> the love. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> What's the best feeling that never happens to me? <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely one. I mean, that's up there with like winning the lottery, I guess. Like that never happened. Have you ever won the lottery? Yeah. Does that ever happen? I'm pretty sure that's like the same rate right there. The odds <laughs> of winning the lottery, odds of a crush, reciprocating your love for uh, him or her. Same thing. I hope, I hope true love happens more than the lottery. I don't know. I guess the lottery probably happens a lot more than we expect, but that's true. Well, not and we true give love, it credit but for like <laughs> the crush reciprocated. I definitely true love happens more than that. Yeah. Um, okay. I've derailed you long enough. We can stop talking about one who waits. We love them. Uh, we can get past it. Let's get on to Chris and Maggie. So this was kind of like one of your, like you already said, you expected this storyline to go one way. Uh, but let's let's talk about where it goes. Yeah, so I thought it was going to turn to Chris searching for that quote unquote beautiful woman, but it turned south it, real fast in my it opinion. South, <laughs> yeah, because I didn't want him to have to go and try to woo Maggie. Yeah. Because uh, for context, um, Chris gets some outside opinions that the way for him to get his voice back is to sleep with a beautiful woman. Yeah, that's um, it's like a, the first suggested by. One who waits through Ed. Ed gives him that nugget of advice. After that, uh, Maurice sits down with Chris and kind of talks about uh, the Arthurian legends, he says. It's like the story of Sir Gawain, which essentially amounts uh, to, in the end, Sir Gawain had to sleep with a very beautiful woman to win his courage back. Uh, I believe Joel even says something. He's like, I don't know where you got this crazy notion that's, you know, (laughs) but he believes that if he sleeps with like, the most beautiful woman in town. He'll have his voice back. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is that I tried looking for that specific story between Sir Gawain uh-huh. uh, and the sorceress and that steals his voice and he has to go sleep with a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. I could not find it. And I tried using various words, trying to get up that or story. Like steals his courage. Yeah. Stealing his courage. I tried to find it. I absolutely couldn't find that specific story. So it might've been an amalgamation of different uh, accounts put into one. Like the Arthurian, like in general, just the Arthurian legend. Yeah. The only one that I could find was Sir Gawain and the green Knight. Okay. And, I think that it might actually be related to this plot line um, right. as vague as, as it is because uh, fast forward just so I can tell the story properly. Okay. 
Chris has to sleep with a beautiful woman. Yeah. Chris chooses Maggie. Ma- instead of going through with it, Maggie just gives him a kiss. Okay, and yeah. the big kiss, which is apparently why the episode is called the, the big titular kiss. kiss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what allows him to get his voice back. Uh, in the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, I'm just I'm gonna quickly paraphrase it really quickly. But in that one, uh, a, a, a giant comes into town, and the giant says that anybody can take a swing at him with his own axe, but a year from now, he gets to swing back at that person. And no one else wants to take a swing at him, but then suddenly Sir Gawain gets enough courage to go up and he picks up the giant's axe and swiftly beheads them. But the giant just picks up his own head and says, all right, I'll see you in a year. And it's around Christmas time when this happens. So next Christmas time, around New Year's Eve, around that area, uh, Sir Gawain realizes that he has to meet up with the Green Knight. So he goes off to go find the Green Knight and he stumbles upon a house that's next to where the Green Knight's going to be. It's about two miles away from it. Okay. And the owner of the house says, hey, uh, why don't you rest here for a couple days before you go face the Green Knight? But on the condition that while you're staying here, whatever you gain throughout this day, whatever it is, you have to give it to me when I come back from hunting. So they agreed to those terms. So on day one, the owner of the establishment goes out to go hunt and his wife, the owner's wife, tries to seduce Sir Gawain and Sir Gawain resists. All he accepts is a kiss. Uh, so, he, so he's going to have to kiss the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so okay. when the owner comes nice. back, he gives him uh, a swift kiss to reflect that's what he got, that's what he earned so throughout he, the day. Well, so like he's not... So he knows like that... Uh, Gawain is like sleep or kissing his wife or he knows that he's kissing someone. He doesn't necessarily know that it's his wife. So that's day one. Day two comes once again. The owner goes off to go hunting. The wife comes in and tries to seduce Sir Gawain. Sir Gawain resists. This time she gives him two kisses uh, and then he gives two kisses to (laughs) the owner. Day three, it gets really hard for Sir Gawain to resist the seduction, (laughs) but the woman decides to give him her girdle and it's a specific type of green lace girdle. And she says it's good luck, and she says if you wear it, it will protect you. So uh, Sir Gawain wears the girdle, and he goes off to go face the Green Knight, and the Green Knight tries to behead him, but he can't. He's protected by By the girdle. girdle. And it's slowly revealed that the Green Knight was actually the owner of the place. Okay. So, yeah, the girdle. Same guy, yeah. Same guy, and the girdle actually protected it. And what I'm trying to say from this really long story <laughs> yes. is that Sir Gawain only accepted a kiss, and that's what helped save like him. Like a single kiss, and similar, Chris gets one kiss that saves him. Yes. Or maybe more. I don't know. You, we don't get to We don't get to see, see it, but all, presumably but. we... You know, we uh-huh. we think it's one kiss from Maggie. So I think there might be some parallels out there. I don't know if I'm overanalyzing no, way too much on some... No, like, there's that. That is, uh, you know, an, a similar element in both. I'm trying to figure out, like, why... So obviously, like, the wife in the Green Knight story, like, she knew her husband was the Green Knight, so maybe she, like, loved Sir Gawain so much that she knew she had to, like, protect him from dying. So mm-hmm. she gives him that... Uh, that's kind of like what saves them, I guess. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of interpretations to the story and mm-hmm. a lot of different readings of it. Um, that was just the one that I had picked up on and I okay. very quickly skimmed throughout the internet. I myself no, yeah. have not read the story uh, <laughs> of that Therian legend. Uh, but I like the way that that scene is shot though when Maurice is talking to Chris about 
They are going legend. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it is really cool. Shout out Sandy Smolin one more time. We need to get Sandy Smolin on the podcast. Uh, I don't know if he'll come on after we like dogged him so bad in the, uh, (laughs) we talked about (laughs) Rachel river, his, uh, debut feature film. We'll just hide that podcast. episode. I don't even know what episode that's on. So, so if, if you haven't heard it, audience, just listen to all every episode. We'll talk about it at some point. Uh, no, th- we're talking about how cool that shot is. It is cool. Whenever Maurice is telling this whole story, going into the storytelling mode, uh, we get this really cool dolly sort of creeping, like wrap around as he's telling the story. And the dolly actually moves in closer too. So we get closer to the action, uh, more intimate as this is going on. There's another cool... Um, in this sort of storyline with Chris and Maggie, there's another cool use of uh, sort of like lighting and camera stuff. It's when Chris, uh, he knows these theories, these suggestions. It's like, all right, if I need to get, if I want to get my voice back, I need to spend a night with the most beautiful lady in town. So he's trying to figure this out. And actually it's right after Maurice gets up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Maurice says something like, a tea kettle is better company than you, son. It's just like, because like Chris can't talk. He's silent. Right after Chris, uh, sorry, right after Maurice stands up from that conversation, Maggie sits down and Chris is just staring at her straight on. And he's like, okay, yeah, this is, this must be the most beautiful woman in Sicily. She's the one that has the power to save me. And yeah, so the way this is sort of communicated is, uh, Maggie is sort of telling Chris about her whole day and stuff. And we get this sort of like slow push in onto Maggie, a single shot on Maggie as she's telling this, this whole, her whole day. And she's lit in this very glamorous light. She looks beautiful. Um, conversely, the reverse shot of that is Chris just kind of staring stone faced at her. Like, you know, gears are turning in his head, uh, but he's lit in a very dark, almost sinister manner with hard light, hard shadows, a lot oh, darker wow. than her. And it's, <laughs> it's almost like he, I mean, obviously his like ulterior motive, which is like, he's, you know, he needs to uh, uh, effectively needs, use her. Yeah. For this cure. It's funny. Maggie also comments, uh, Chris is writing down on no cards and he's like, uh, where's Rick? And she, she reads it and she's like, oh, Rick, he's got to uh, fly some of these like big wigs, these old guys uh, up to Valdez. They're trying to say that the whole thing didn't happen, <laughs> which I guess is in reference to the Exxon Valdez uh, oil spill, right? Yeah, the Exxon Valdez oil spill of 1989. Yes, 1989. So that's like this show was shot in 91. So it's, they're still, still affecting uh, Still talking about it. It's yeah, still, it's still topical. a topic of discussion, like yeah. Anwar, something like that. Yeah, our Anwar episode. That was episode episode three. That's what yeah, it was. Yeah, it was episode three. <laughs> yeah. I knew it was either Anwar two or three. Drilling. Chief Ron Concomo. Chief Ron Concomo. All right, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> People may just tune into this episode. They have no idea what we're, we're talking about. Um, uh, this is actually something we should talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. You've lost your voice before. I have. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, like for extended period. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize this until uh, I was in my uh, mid-20s, but uh, I actually had a vocal cyst on my vocal cords, and I elected to have surgery to remove it. And whenever you do have vocal cord cyst removal surgery, you can't speak for a few months afterwards. So for the to first like let month, it heal, to like heal up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You just can't have any vibrations on the vocal cord whatsoever. So for the first month, absolutely no talking whatsoever. So 
right before the surgery, I recorded a bunch of lines on my phone. So a bunch of the lines were like, thank you. Pre-recorded message. Yeah, pre-recorded memos pretty much. Like, I'll, I'll take five of those. Or you look very nice today. <laughs> like, stuff like that. And I would always play funny them. if you like only recorded, I'll take five of those, but not any other number. Yeah. So it's just like trying to order a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I I also had a system of uh, using a whiteboard, um, uh-huh. and I would carry it around with me, like I was going to a protest or something like, like a that. dry erase board, mm-hmm. like you're writing on. It. Okay, yeah, and I would always <laughs> write on it to communicate with people. I learned sign language just uh-huh. to say very simple things like hello and thank you because I thought that was way quicker than writing on the dry erase board. Nice, yeah, uh, of course, yeah, and yeah, I, I felt very similar to Chris in his situation because I did for. One of my other methods was also writing on note cards really quickly just to communicate with someone what I needed to say. Uh-huh. And I got to say, I agree with Chris when he was saying at the end of the episode, like speech was a really powerful way to communicate with other people because music was the... Yeah, Voltaire what, says music is the key to the your heart. Own, your own heart, yeah. Yeah. And Whereas speech is uh, the key gateway. Key to someone else or something. To communicate to with socializing. others. Uh, what, did, what did you say? He's like, yeah... Um, it's just something to the effect of like speech is powerful. Don't take it lightly or something. Yeah. And I agree with them after going through that ordeal and even just having um, a, a quote unquote new voice in general, because beforehand, whenever I would speak for extended periods of time, I would grow hoarse. I would lose my voice and I would lose some to me. I felt like I lost some form of identity, but after the surgery, uh, and it took like almost a full year to adjust to it. Mm. You can finally give, you know, you can finally turn thought to speech instead of just having it remain within your mind. And it's a, it's something really underrated. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I totally identify with Chris throughout this episode. Yeah. Let's continue. There's actually a lot of really, really fun scenes. I think with, uh, with this Chris Maggie, uh, storyline, I know you were hoping that we would get back to, uh, the, the beautiful lady that yeah. <laughs> started him on this trail. I thought it would be his own great search. <laughs> yeah. It would, did we say this already? Or I mean, I know we said this already because we're recording this for the second <laughs> Round time. Round two. <laughs> okay, but I don't know if we mentioned it in this take two. But uh, yeah, we were talking about, you know, if it had gone that route, it would be cool because cause Chris would be on his like sort of detective journey mm-hmm. searching for this beautiful lady um, that stole his voice at the same time. We're intercutting with like uh, Ed and one who waits on their journey. Yeah, and we get some like compare and contrast. But uh, no, sorry, it's uh, it's Maggie. Let's let's move past it, <laughs> Charles. Uh, yeah, okay. okay, we can we can go past it. <laughs> so I think it's a uh, sort of established in one of the first scenes with Maggie where she says, "Oh yeah, I'm supposed to come by K Bear and fix the um, heater for you. Mm-hmm. I'll be by soon, like the next day or something." She comes by to fix the heater and. Chris is dressed up once again, like a very suave Steve Jobs. He's got like the <laughs> turtleneck and a nice like button up or something. Maggie's coming to fix the radiator. He's arranged this romantic sort of candlelit dinner. Uh, I think it's really funny. You know, he's giving her the notes and stuff and, uh, and, and she's trying to fix the radiator. I think it's really funny when she like goes off screen and he like pulls out a bottle of champagne and he uncorks it. It is just the loudest champagne pop. It sounds like a shotgun or something. I was going to say, <laughs> was that digitally inserted or was that actually the sound that bottle I, made? No, no. So here's the thing. Uh, champagne is so loud that it no doubt peaked any microphone that would have been on set. So they would have had to take a pre-recorded sound effect and replace it because it would have oh. blown out any microphone, I imagine. Uh, so they so they selected that champagne mm-hmm. sound. I. 
I'm pretty sure, like 99% sure that this was hand-selected. And it's funny that they didn't just use a very tame pop. They used a very explosive, like, cannon. And it is a funny part of the scene, I think. And he shows no clinching whatsoever when he opens it. He's like, business as usual. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it it is a I think it's a it's a small funny nod because uh, you know at, at this point in the scene uh, Maggie hasn't really picked up on it she's as I said she's still trying to fix the radiator and Chris is trying really hard to win her affection you know he's got he's got all these like very um, charming uh, notes that he's handing her mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and oh the music that Chris turns on in this scene we actually talked about in the last episode. Another thing that's pulling from goodbye to all that in the scene when um, Joel is just completely depressed, he's either in bed. I believe he's in bed and Ed comes to visit him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about this with Mason. Uh, he, he said, maybe it's a, um, I still haven't really figured out exactly what the song is. He says it's probably a um, famous jazz standard, but according to moosechick.com, which uh, lists all the songs and stuff for most of the episodes, We've been over this before, but we're watching the DVDs, and a lot of times, um, at least on the season two DVD, and I think onward, some of the music from the original TV broadcast has been replaced on the DVD. I guess they didn't want to uh, spend as much money on rights um, for music, unfortunately. But um, the listing for this song, I believe it was, if I'm not mistaken, according to this site, it was what actually aired for the TV broadcast. But this song is um, listed as Tea with Alice is the name of the song. But the Mm. only thing I could find whenever I clicked through some links is uh, I couldn't actually hear this. I couldn't find a recording of it to listen to for free. So I don't know if that's actually true, if that's the name of the song. But what I found was uh, it comes from a (laughs) compilation of uh, music. Uh, The record is called Cafe House Musique. So it just sounds like generic music. Sounds like elevator music. Yeah, and it does actually sound sort of like old jazzy elevator music or something. But sorry to go off on this tangent. I just found it was no, interesting because no, no, no. it's the exact same piece of music from that, uh, that scene that I just mentioned in the last episode. Do you think that was purposeful or do you think that the music supervisors were just saying, oh, we have the rights I to I thought this. that it was replacement music, but according to Moose Chick, it's the one from the original broadcast. I don't know that's true or not i i figured it was replacement Mm. maybe it was replacement music in the first episode and not original broadcast so they're just like we have this piece of music might as well use it for both yeah yeah we've already purchased the rights to it let's get our money worth out of it maybe it's because i'm actually expecting to hear more like muzak uh replacement music Mm -hmm. but i definitely certainly get that sense watching these episodes now like i'm starting to be like this feels like not original broadcast. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like it's replacement. It feels like it's Muzak. Uh. Oh, there's a quote in this uh, scene. Chris gives a, a note card to Maggie, uh, and she reads it. It's a quote from Krishnamurti. The heart becomes an object if the brain only works. So he's like trying to get her to stop working on the <laughs> radiator, come sit down and, and have dinner that he prepared. <laughs> what did he prepare? Is like glazed carrots or something? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Glazed carrot was a side. I forgot what the main dish was though. Okay. Yeah, me too. It's part of this uh, romantic dinner. He hands um, Maggie a card and she reads it. And the card says, a toast to the most beautiful girl in Sicily is what she reads. And she blushes, you know, mm-hmm. and it's very romantic and cute. You know, it's a nice message. But then Chris, 
he can't speak. And you can tell he's got this ulterior motive. He's not only trying to compliment her, but he's like verifying the fact that this is the woman I have to sleep with to get my <laughs> voice back. I thought, I thought that was very uh, like ingenious, like in a weird twisted, like, <laughs> like, cause he's like, setting this whole thing up, you know, it's kind of, yeah. kind of spooky and like creepy. It's a scheme. It's a scheme. His. It yeah. definitely is. And okay. We didn't talk about this yet. This is when, um, uh, after the romantic dinner, Joel and Maggie, um, are at the brick. Actually, it, it seems like an angle I've never seen before in the brick, but they're at the brick, right? There's mm-hmm. no other bar. No, no, no. They're to. definitely at the brick. And, um, he can tell Joel can tell that Maggie's mind is somewhere else. She's obviously thinking about yeah, Chris she's playing with the beer, uh, yeah. beer bottle label. Uh, yeah. She's like tugging at that beer bottle, uh, label, like completely zoned out. I love what Joel says. You better be careful. You're about to dismember that beer bottle. <laughs> says, uh, do I detect a certain smugness tonight? That smile of yours makes the Mona Lisa look self-doubting. You know, <laughs> I, just, I love the writing here for whatever reason. I, I love the phrasing. What I like about this scene. It's, Weird though. I want to know how you feel about this because essentially Joel is um, completely incredulous to this idea that Maggie would agree to sleep with Chris just out of this weird sort of like wives tale. What's the word? Like this weird sort of suggestion that has no medical basis. She's going to sleep with him to get his voice back. But Maggie almost takes it as a challenge and she sort of empowers herself and she's trying to like defend and prove her, her, <laughs> your face is just like, no, sorry. Yeah. I don't think we'll be able to keep that in, but it was <laughs> the, the fridge started making noise. It's got to um, make eyes somehow, you know, like the fridge that every uh, recording studio has. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're totally in this uh, professional sound booth. Well, I guess, uh, the, I your, mean, that's super funny. It's like, what does something that a really low end and a really high end podcasting yeah. <laughs> studios have? And yeah, it's a refrigerator. It's a refrigerator. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. If you got, if you're like big deal podcast, you got to have your beverages nearby. Uh, <laughs> um, shit. <laughs> We're, we're burning the candle at both ends. Uh, here we go. Yeah, it's like it's like Maggie takes this as a chance to defend and prove her womanhood and her beauty um, because, yeah, she's like, you don't believe I'm the most, I'm, you don't think I can do it? You don't think I have it in me? I'm not woman enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm the, the most beautiful woman in Sicily. Uh, and I love her remark as she's leaving. She says, he's not just going to talk, Fleischman. He's going to sing like Pavarotti. Like, <laughs> I love that she takes it as a challenge. But what do you, is this like proper? Is this right in 2019? Just to kind of like, in, in one side of the coin, it's sort of like objectifying her beauty. But in the other side, she's using that as like, she's defending that. Like, so that's part of my womanhood. That's part of yeah, um, I what, what I, you mean. what she's proud of, I guess. I think Where that do you land, where do you stand? Here? It's kind of a tricky subject. Cause I see what you mean. That it is definitely uh, two sides of the coin that we're looking at here. I mean, on one hand, the foundation of this, which is a suggestion that Chris has to go sleep with a beautiful woman yeah. is kind of, strange in 2019 eyes. Yeah. Uh, if we look at it in today's time, I, I don't think they would have a plot line as blatant. Yeah. As, as like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, they would probably word it in a different way at the very least. Mm-hmm. Then maybe they would be like, you got to earn the affections of a beautiful woman. And I believe when it's first brought up, one who waits says you have to 
steal the soul or something or capture the spirit of a, the most beautiful woman in the village or something in the tribe. Oh God. Yeah. It's a weird, it's represented in a lot of strange ways. Mm-hmm. I think that the way Maggie approached it is, is very telling of her character. I understand why they wanted to have this plot line because they wanted to show that Maggie wanted to spite Joel and that she was her own character and that yeah. she didn't, she didn't want to listen to whatever Joel might have some opinion of her because whatever Joel's opinion of her is, she's, she's going to disprove that. Right? Yeah. She's going to yeah. disprove that because she immediately just doesn't like anything that Joel thinks of. But the idea that she is an object to be earned, it can definitely yeah. be seen as well throughout this plot line. Um, of course, we're just two men talking about this. that. That is entirely true. <laughs> but we have, we do have our guest uh, on this episode is a woman, so ho- hopefully she'll talk about this. But maybe she'll have. Uh, I'm really interested to see what she has to say, and hopefully it's a it's a new perspective from what we've been. Yeah, talking definitely. About. I, I think that overall, I'm not like the biggest fan of this plot line. Yeah, but I'm definitely. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I also thought it was kind of weird how. This happens in a, a, a lot of the episodes now in season two. I'm starting mm-hmm. to gather, but like townsfolks are gathering yes. to see the, the the spectacle of this. Yeah, whatever shenanigans. Joel that says Joel something like they're cheering. Into. They're cheering this. What is this Olympic event? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. Sorry, maybe we we kind of skipped brushed over it, but. So this is the night when Chris is going to Maggie's to sleep with her. Yeah. And all of the, like, not maybe not all the town, but a lot of townsfolk have gathered outside. They want to know if this is actually going to happen. Yeah. They're cheering him on and he pulls up on his snowmobile because he doesn't drive. (laughs) Wait, is he driving a snowmobile? I totally. Yeah. He pulls up in like a small little snowmobile uh, (laughs) vehicle. Because if you remember in season one, he inherits the Cadillac, uh, the Cadillac. And he, I think he mentions that like he doesn't have a car, himself. but then he has to give it, he gives it back and he gives it back. He doesn't keep it, but yeah, briefly inherits it. Very swanky uh, vehicle for him to, <laughs> to drive throughout yeah. town as a little snowmobile, but he pulls up, kind of like takes a wave at the crowd and then goes and steps inside to go perform the deed. And the entire town is there while Joel and Joel Maurice, is completely in shock and disbelief. Yeah. He's just uh, flabbergasted at that. I thought that was, I, I like that the townsfolks are becoming their own character. Like yeah. the town itself is a character. I like that. Yeah. But I don't know how <laughs> I feel both in real life and in television, how like a group of people just watching With like, uh, like a sporting event or yeah. something. <laughs> so whenever Chris does get inside, uh, I like this Maggie, um, is sort of telling her, telling Chris about her day. Oh, she's dressed in like this uh, black dress. I believe she has like some gel in her hair or something. She looks very made up uh, mm-hmm. in comparison to her to her average look on the show. I think we did say in the last episode she looks a little more made up. Like yeah. she's wearing more makeup at mm-hmm. least uh, when you first see her in that uh, season premiere. But anyway, I like that uh, she starts off the scene by kind of going around and gathering. Um, some things around the house and she's kind of telling Chris about her day. She's breaking the ice with Chris by talking about her day of spent ice fishing, which is literally breaking the ice, (laughs) you know, doing that. I thought that was interesting. Uh, And it's pretty funny because they sit side by side on this couch and Chris obviously can't talk, but she's like, um, here we go. Are you ready? Like, we're going to do this. Um, We're going to, Go at it, I guess, on primetime, uh, you know, cable television. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is kind of fun. You know, we're expecting one thing, and it does end up in, as we said, the titular big 
kiss. I think it's kind of fun how this scene resolves because obviously Maggie can't do it. Chris, um, you know, gives her a note and it's like, you know, if you, we don't have to do this. This is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. He um, recognizes the oddness of this situation, um, but she says she wants to go through with it. It gets very awkward and she just hops up. She says, I can't do this. Oh, I wrote this down as well. She says, I can't sleep with you. Nothing personal. But sleeping with someone is the like, personal. There's no other way to look at that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I don't know. This is 2019 now, so maybe it's... <laughs> That's true. I don't, I don't know what the kids are up to these days. <laughs> but I do like how this finally ties up at the end because uh, she's like, we got to figure this out. We can figure something out. I can't sleep with you. Nothing personal, but we're going to figure this out. She sits down next to him and she says... You can't get your voice back until I give it to you, right? And I'm the only one who can save you, right? Do you believe that? I'm going to give you your voice now or something like that. You know, she, yeah. she like stares him straight and she's like, follow me here. Trust me. If you believe in it, it'll work. And mm-hmm. she kisses him. He comes outside to a round of cheers from the townsfolk and his, you know, his lips are all red from what seems to be maybe a makeout session. Maybe mm-hmm. it was just one kiss. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe she was just wearing a lot of, uh, a lot of heavy lipsticks. But yeah, take us, take us from here, Charles. I've been talking too much about, uh, Oh no, Maggie it's all right. Uh, great. Now I got the reins on the most creepiest scene. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good. So we <laughs> so, finally made it back to the creepy scene. Yeah. So well, as it's established that he only received a kiss for, from what we can tell, yeah, we go into the next the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we go to the next morning. Chris has his voice back. He's back at the radio station doing his job and he's given us a great, monologue about love and truth and yeah, which the power of speech. Yeah. The power of speech, Voltaire and, and, then and he, all that jazz. All that uh, great stuff. And then he gets a knock on the door and it's Joel and Joel kind of comes in <laughs> oh, all no. sheepish and he uh, kind of tries to skirt around the question, but then finally gets down to brass tacks and he says, this is, I mean, it's really disgusting in my opinion, but he goes like, is, you know, does she moan? Yeah. He kinda, like, like he, looks at her. I mean, looks at him. Yeah. yeah he's kind of, so Joel is like, trying to talk, I guess, these, like, intimate moments. (laughs) I don't know. Chris, I think um, Chris tries to handle it. It almost feels to me like Chris is ashamed for Joel because it's just the weirdest. Why why would you go there? Like, especially on primetime TV. Yeah, uh, well... I didn't interpret it that way. The way that I interpreted it was that uh, Chris was being a gentleman. Like, uh, yeah, like you don't kiss and tell. Definitely. He's, he's definitely trying yeah. to. But when, when, what makes it worse is that Joel's like, ah, you don't want to talk about it. And he, he leaves. And then he comes and back. And he comes back and he says, she's definitely one, isn't she? She definitely moans, doesn't yeah, she? she? Oh. And it's like, what? That makes it way worse. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's the, it's, I think by far the creepiest. It even surpasses the creepiness that Maurice can reach in some previous episodes. And in this episode, of course, this takes the cake for like the creepiest thing. I- I've seen this episode a lot um, and it doesn't get better. Anytime. <laughs> it gets worse. It's, it's weird. It's not good to have it God, included in this. And what if the, what if the, what is the purpose of, what is the purpose of this scene? I don't uh, know. Like it's to show that Joel is curious and sort of infatuated with Maggie, but it's the worst representation of that. They could have done it in so many better ways or like they could have at least, and it's still not that it's great just of a line. 
Yeah, but he could have been like, well, was she good in bed? Like, maybe that might have been slightly better, but even still. There are better ways to approach this, but there it are. doesn't have to be in there. Yeah, there's much more better, delicate ways of doing this. Uh, or just better writing in general. Yeah. Also, what if the what if the mic was muted? Like, <laughs> like the radio? Like yeah. the broadcast? Like the whole town just oh, heard no. that exchange. <laughs> that uh. would have been a little funnier, maybe. Uh, but it still would have been like, how would you recover? Like everyone in town knows that oh, Joel is when, such a perv. Yeah, that's when Maurice like gets him out of the contract. He fires him at that point. <laughs> oh yeah, and he goes back to he, <laughs> he goes, goes back, back to New, New York. York and he's all happy now. It's all oh, a brilliant God. scheme by Joel. Since we're kind of reaching the end here, there's a there's this one scene that I really um, like the sort of the visual language of <laughs> the context is pretty strange, but. Um, I'm trying to remember how it falls in the episode because I like to think that it comes up like right after you're coming back from a commercial break. It definitely does. Yeah. I know you what so? you're talking about. You know, yeah. So this is the scene where, um, we've got this very hazy slow motion sort of it's shots of the, um, the Miss Northwest passage, uh, beauty pageant. And Maurice is like the judge there. And Shelly, of course, is one of the contestants in this dress, kind of like twirling around. And we get this amazing, I really love this music. And it, thankfully, it's on the DVD. It's the original broadcast music. The song is um, Pretty Lady by Pacific Overtures. Not by, but it's, what, it's the musical, right? Yeah, that's Pacific the Overtures musical. musical. So it's the song Pretty Lady from that musical. And this, this crazy daydream sequence where Maurice is sort of like stuck in this moment in, t- in time. But we get this hard cut. Uh, the music drops out fast and Maurice is like picking up the needle from the record. He's in K-Bear. He's doing this uh, broadcast. And he has this, uh, I think, a great monologue about kind of um, re-examining love. And he thought he might have been in love. I like that. I don't like that Maurice, uh, this, this whole characterization of him having this infatuation with um, Shelly is still a thing. I thought we had closed the book on that <laughs> a while ago. It's still lingering, but I like that, at least in this episode, it seems like he's sort of over the hill. Like he's looking back at it as a fond memory, maybe. I like what he has to say. He is um, reconsidering it, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, when you're in love, it feels great, but whenever you're, you've lost that love, when you look back at it, you can kind of see everything maybe a little clearer and you can tell that, you know, there are the happy moments, which is represented by, I guess, this musical number. Mm-hmm. And then we snap out of it and you can kind of look back and, and, and get sort of a clearer picture. You know, sometimes when you look back on a situation, you realize it wasn't all you thought it was. A beautiful girl walked into your life and you fell in love. Or did you? Perhaps it was only a childish infatuation or maybe just a brief moment of vanity. But uh, no, you're saying this is, I mean, I don't think it necessarily surpasses the creepiness of Joel, but it's still, I'm, you know, we're not excited that this sort of Maurice Shelley, uh, yeah. he's still holding a blowtorch for her, as she <laughs> called it. Yeah. It's still I, The subject matter is uh, troubling. Detestable. Least, yeah, <laughs> because he's... He, he's at this beauty pageant and she's just being paraded around in front of these old men. And I, I, I don't like that plot line, but I agree with you in what you're saying that you like the characterization of what he was in this episode. Cause it's nostalgia that he's looking back at yeah. her with yeah. not longing, which is a two distinct 
indifferent uh, feelings. So I like that. I, I just hope that we can get some more episodes where Maurice looks less like a bigot and less selfish or whatever it is, terrible characterizations of him are and yeah. more and, toward the backstory of him. And hopefully we can finally close the book here on yeah. this strange love triangle. I think the, the resolution of this is when um, at the end, Shelley does admit that uh, Maurice this whole time is kind of actually questioning his feelings. And he was, he's wondering, was I actually really in love with Shelley? Was it just like a weird crush? Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out Shelley admits to him, he's like, you know, I was like, I had a crazy crush on you at the time, at least at the time, you know? Yeah. And, you know, this sort of resolution seems to cheer up Maurice. Like he has a smirk, but it's not, like you said, it's not a smirk of, of like longing. It's more of like sort of like a faded memory, like mm -hmm. something that you can look back on and smile. So hopefully Maurice has gone over that bridge. We can move past it and um, start something new or just forget that ever happened. I don't know why the writers wanted to keep <laughs> introducing this. We had plenty of chances to, to not talk about this anymore yeah. after Dream Schemes, Budding Greens. I do like that line that he has though, where he says, Grand Passions pack a wallop. Grand Passions pack a wallop, yeah. Yeah, because that's, that's, um, that's why he, he thinks that he wasn't actually in love with Shelley because he was never really hit with uh, um, pain. He talks about feeling pain when you're in love and uh, whenever... Chris sees this beautiful woman. It steals something from him. And we learned that when Shelly met Maurice, she was sick the whole time. Yeah. So that's how, that, by that metric, she was in love with Maurice. Though she does say, Maurice, you had a strong effect on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What are, I think we're, we're at the end. We, we, we didn't touch on um, sort of like the very end of this episode, which is sort of a similar oh. mirror bookend to yeah. the very beginning. In the beginning, Ed is walking down a, a road at night. At no, the it's end, day. Oh, it's, I think it's at night at the beginning. Oh, it's not at the beginning. Yeah, right. sorry. And then at the end, it's day, mm -hmm. and he's driving his truck down a road. And uh, he stops because there's a man changing his tire, and he stops to help this man. So, tell us about it, Charles. Yeah, so he uh, notices that a man has his, uh, what is it, his tire is, uh, needs to be changed yeah, out? Yeah, changing out his tire. Yeah, and it, we finally get to have a glimpse of this gentleman that's on the road, and it looks almost like Ed. Yeah, he's like a little darker skin, but he's Native American. He's got the same hair. You same said, jacket. Same jacket. Um, Even same facial structure. Yeah, casting. I guess so. Very handsome Native American man who introduces himself as Smith. Like, that's his name. Mm -hmm. So we get that click. And if you missed it, by the time Ed gets back to his car, he stops and thinks out loud. He says, Smith, that must be. So I guess that must be his dad, right? I mean, that's what the show wants us to think. Yeah, of presumably that's what the show wants to lead us toward is that that was his father. And, you know, so he finally actually did, you know, despite um, it's funny because I think one who waits before he leaves, he tells Ed, um, follow the road like that's keep your eyes on the road. That's that'll give you the yeah. answers or something that'll lead you to your answers. And so by that um, advice, yeah, maybe one who waits was accurate if this actually is his father yeah maybe he was he knew all along i feel like this idea that um ed searching for his family i think this comes up again so i can't remember if smith returns it's possible he does i, I just remember that ed is looking for his family again in a later episode i believe i think this is going to come up again oh okay obviously. well i'm i'm glad that we're turning back to it because i think that's something worth exploring i think there's a lot of meat yeah, the whole, like his, this. he's a young guy and finding his family. Uh, one thing that's funny is 
they're driving on this long road, wilderness road, right? Mm -hmm. And um, Smith fixes his tire, goes on his way. And it's only like, you know, until Smith has left that it hits Ed. This could be my father. Yeah. However, um, this is like one road. There's no way, like... Ed could just hop in his car and drive down. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no way he could lose Smith. That's true. Smith, Smith can't lose him. There's, just drive straight, maybe pick up the speed a little bit, accelerate a little yeah, bit Yeah, just more. go a little bit beyond the speed limit. He would have caught up to his father. Yeah. <laughs> so. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good point. We're going to throw to our guest for this episode. Um, her name is Lizzie. She is a film producer, a filmmaker, course um she's working on a few different projects right now always uh juggling a lot of stuff but she's incredible and hopefully she liked it we'll see hopefully she has a perspective that we haven't talked upon in our what like three hours at this point of talking yeah, about yeah, this episode we talked about this a our lot. second <laughs> take um so it's kind of hard for me to believe that there's going to be something we missed but i'm sure She's found it. Our uh, guest have always found something new to talk about. Yeah, it's yeah. that's that's what's surprising is like we <laughs> we've spent way too much time overanalyzing this, but there's always something that uh, catches someone, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that we we don't really pick up on. Anyway, Lizzie, let's hear what she has to say. Take a sitter, Lizzie. All right, we just watched episode two of season two. I think it's called the Cold Wet Kiss or something. What's it called? The first kiss? Who cares? It's about the one where inexplicably the guy from that uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding movie gets his voice stolen by some random beautiful woman that we never see again. Is she going to come back later in the season? Have we seen her before? Anyway, steals his voice like Little Mermaid style, I guess. And he gets it back by making out with this like tomboy girl okay so I was surprised at how non-realistic the show was like it was kind of like the same universe like I could see the same universe of Twin Peaks like way up north like the same shit was happening you know and like also in the same universe like like Gilligan's Islands happening somewhere else halfway around the world Um, there's a couple images that really stuck in my head is like, man, they really took the time to like nail that detail in. And it was for some reason, there's like a scene in the diner where Fleischman or whatever, the doctor is talking with that older guy. I don't know his name, but Shelly, who is somehow the wife of this older guy, even though she's like obviously 22 years old, um, she comes up with a pot of coffee and the pot of coffee is so steaming hot. Like it, it like is pouring steam all over the frame and it's I was like man they really took the time to make sure that the audience knew that they serve really hot coffee at this place which is also a motif of Twin Peaks interesting enough um yeah another thing that kind of stuck out to me is like wow that's an interesting detail was the fact that they were able to either get a real moose or else a like comp a moose into the opening credits like walking through the town and I thought how much coordination does it take to like get a moose to walk across the frame? You know what I mean? Or do they just like buy that footage and overlap it? Either way, either way, it's a good bit of coordination and foresight. Um, I hate to say it, but yeah, I I really want to watch another episode, even out of context. I'm surprised. Like, does anything wrong ever happen in this town? Like having never seen another episode, like 
is there like a snowstorm that's gonna like kill a bunch of people at some point or is someone gonna like get their leg like chopped in a snow blower or something like like what's the worst thing that could possibly happen in Sicily Alaska you know it has to be a snowstorm right like someone has to go missing in the snowstorm or like lose their arm in like a gangrene incident so interested to see what the heck y'all make of this episode because I mean it was a weird one but it was a positive one I appreciated that um all right nice work y'all all right, that was Lizzie with the guest commentary. I really like what she had to say, but I'm particularly interested in what the worst thing to happen in Sicily could be. Yeah, like she was uh, like listing the freak accidents and, and things like that that could happen. <laughs> yeah, like being snowed in or uh, someone dying from, what was the disease, gangrene? Yeah, our gangrene, I guess, is uh, when you sort of get an infection or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, again, we're not doctors, but... Well, that's why Joel's um, there. He's there to yeah. stop the gangrene. <laughs> yeah, uh, it kind of reminded me of um, our our friend Matt's commentary from episode three. When he was watching it, he was unsure whether or not the show was a comedy. Was it a drama? Was it a horror? You know, he thought it had more horror <laughs> tendencies. I think he was just probably paranoid while watching it for some reason. Yeah, well, I think it's probably because... I mean, even she had done it too. Lizzie had even said that there was a lot of resemblance to Twin Peaks and in Twin Peaks, a whole lot of murdering going on. That's true. What do you think? uh, I mean, I know as dark and as deadly as Sicily can get, I've I've seen this series, but what do you think? What do you think could be the most dangerous thing that would happen here? You know, to be honest, if you think about it, we've already seen some pretty dark stuff. Like we've seen a suicide. What is, so Lizzie hasn't seen. So what, what has she missed? Soapy Sanderson suicide. Um, I guess there's Adam, who is supposed to be the sort of this fearful monster from episode eight, sort of the, the Bigfoot character, but he turns out to be, you know, harmless. If anything, he's very angry and likes to yell a lot, but. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it is kind of dark that he suffers from PTSD. Mm-hmm. Jesse the bear, I guess, is, uh, is deadly, is a deadly force to be reckoned with in Sicily. That's true. We'll definitely have to revisit this and um, see how uh, how dangerous can Sicily get. I mean, it kind of feels we've co- we've commented on this before. It's very it's sort of a comedy show in a lot of ways, so we don't feel a whole lot of danger. Um, but I like the uh, alternate title that uh, Lizzie suggested: "The Cold <laughs> Wet Kiss." <laughs> definitely has the theme of a uh, snow, you know. Like yeah, I know. <laughs> Definitely. I think that could work as an alternative title. I yeah. like that she knows Chris from My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah, I think Katie as well from Episode 7, our guest on Episode 7, uh, pointed that out. <laughs> it's the same actor, John Corbett. I really laughed when she said, I hate to say it, but I'd like to watch another episode. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, again, I, I think uh, we find that a lot of our guests become fans of the show, or at least that's what they tell us. But... um if you had been brought in on this episode, do you think uh, you would stick around? I think so. It's a pretty good one. Uh, on this particular episode or like just... This one. This one okay. in particular. Um, yeah, I think so. I never had anyone compare the show to Gilligan's Island before. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting choice because we've gotten Twin Peaks before. It, it As we said, the show ran sort of concurrently with Twin Peaks. Um, Gilligan's Island. Have you ever watched that show a lot? I had to look it up before because... It, the characters are all referenced a lot, but no, I've never seen a single episode. Have you? I mean, I feel like I've seen it when I was a kid or something just on TV, but I'm not, 
I mean, I guess, you know, I know the characters, you know, just sort of the pop culture of it, but uh, no. In a lot of ways, I guess it could could be comparable because Joel is sort of this fish out of water in Northern Exposure, and Gilligan's Island isn't the story. Like, they're all sort of uh, shipwrecked, so they're sort of building their own community. Uh, a very, yeah. very like, so, sort of a small community. And it's also, like, yeah, everyone is uh, eclectic, and they're very individualized. Like, yeah. Uh, not, like, free spirit or anything like that, but their characters are distinctly written. Uh, yeah, like, they, they each have their own sort of role to fill. Mm-hmm. Um, for yeah, sure. so I guess that's a neat comparison between the two shows. Very good character design, I guess you could say. I, I know you were saying you were very upset that Chris never found the woman who actually stole his voice. He he had to find a different method of regaining his voice. But Lizzie was also seemed to be very, very the people. <laughs> the people want a happy ending, man. Yeah, the people have spoken. Where? What happened? We we will never see her again. I'll tell you that. I mean, oh uh, really? Yeah, I don't know uh, if we did we say this already in the episode, but spoiler alert, that's kind of the first and last time we see this mysterious woman. I like the detail that Lizzie points out of the steaming hot coffee. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like small details like that that are really, um, you appreciate it when you notice it. It's, it's like something you don't necessarily look out for, but when it's there, you may not even... You may not even realize it, but it's a it's a nice touch. And especially in this season, since we're technically entering into winter for Sicily, you know, the steam shows just how cold the atmosphere is uh, in comparison to the hot, hot coffee. Do you think it was actually the steam was by design like Lizzie thought, or do you think it was just like the prop people? I imagine they they refill, you know, the coffee for each take so that it's fresh and steaming, you know? Mm, when they okay. do a reset. Do you think that the moose could could have been a special effects moose? As that never Lizzie suggested. To me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't uh, think it it looks pretty real. Um she brings up a good point. It's like how do you train a moose to do certain things? But I think the answer might be that they simply just let the moose run wild and they just set up their camera and, and started photographing, you know? Like a documentary series? I think so. You know, what are your thoughts on the uh I'm sure we've talked about the opening titles so many times. I know a lot of guests uh, seem to be really intrigued. Yeah, that's where our eyeballs go to. It's definitely the opening credits. Technology is not good enough for a moose to be animatronic, (laughs) right? Like we're not not at that stage. Uh, Let's see. Jurassic Park was, what, 93? So I guess technically we're not at that level, but it could get there. And get there. Okay, that's a real moose. There's no way that's, that's yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> definitely not a cyborg moose or anything like that. Well, yeah, that's uh, Lizzie's commentary. Very grateful to have her on as a guest. Let's see, what do we have next, Charles? We have episode three. All is vanity. Ah, huh, it's kind of a strange title, actually. All is vanity. Yeah, perhaps it suggests. Uh, I don't know. Beauty. Uh, we we talked about beauty a lot in this episode, so maybe we're returning to that. Uh, maybe there's cosmetic surgery. I mean, I know, <laughs> I know exactly what happens. I'm just trying to feed you uh, different, different options for what, what's in store. <laughs> but we'll leave it to that. I'm going to stop trying to lead you astray and just let you watch the episode and you'll, you'll see what they're talking about. All right. Well, thanks for potting with me. Yeah. I'll see you next week, man. 
Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. The music featured in today's episode was written by Kevin McLeod. And Laser Kitties made the podcast artwork. Thanks to Lizzie for being our guest analyst. And if you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.